Batman, you. What? You're I was, have enough. Oh, I was Appleton and Barcelona. I can't believe it happened. Wow. Oh, they're fine. It landed wheels up. They're cool. The wheels up so you could drive away and everyone's okay. Yeah, you know how it goes. I see getting away. What's their license plate? I got the license. You didn't need his bionic guy for that. Stop wasting energy. You didn't need your bionic eye. The government's like, you use your bionic eye to get a license plate number? Fuck you. It's my body. Okay, now, this is the same restaurant they were in when she, like, threw him through the window. So... When they're leaving, the the maitre d' person will be like, "Would you would you please use the door this time?" It really is going to say that. They let him in. Wouldn't you let a bionic couple back in after they they uh, broke your window and repaid it? <laughs> I guess yeah. Is the window fixed? She said, "Here's my card. Call Here's me my about card. the window." But wouldn't guy throwing at it, window etiquette would insist that you would never show up to the restaurant again. Yeah, that's right. You would the be window. embarrassed, right? You would be embarrassed. Right. Well, let's say you're the owner. You don't want Mike Spiegel and the bionic asshole walking to Scotty's to throw someone out the window again, right? Unless you're scared of Mike Spiegel. Man. Absolutely. So on t- for two reasons, they shouldn't be here. This must have just been they've shot on the same day because yeah. – the owners wouldn't let him in, and they wouldn't want to go in. It's so embarrassing. They're so embarrassed. You remember that lover's spat where you threw me out the window? It wasn't even a lover's spat. So right he now we're going to have a situation in which it's like a movie does something that would never happen in the real world, like their feelings and stuff. It's like now she like gets her memory back, and he knows, and and instead of them getting together, she's like, Let's just stay in touch. Let's just be friends. It doesn't make sense. I see. That wasn't my knack for getting acquainted. Maybe that will do better. I know how it works. He's talking about his son right now. Oh, TV humor. Teflon was used a lot in '87 because of the president. Remember, like, uh, yeah, Reagan was there was the Teflon Ron, or well, the, no, no, you're thinking of the mob guy, the Teflon, yeah, right, Don. the mob guy. That's who I'm thinking of, yeah, Te- yeah, yeah, Teflon Don or something, yes, I guess it was John Gotti, John Gotti, right. Gotti. John, John, you ever see the movie Gotti, uh, Travolta, yeah, I, I didn't think it was so great. Someone 
exactly like you. I've been traveling all around the world, waiting for you to come through. Someone like you, make it all worthwhile. Someone like you, keep me satisfied. Someone exactly like you. I've been traveling a hard road. They've been looking for someone exactly like you. Waiting for the light to come shining through someone like you. Make it all worthwhile. Someone like you. Make me satisfied. Someone exactly like you. I've been doing. Some soul searching, find out where you were at. I've been up and down the highway, in all kinds of foreign land. Someone like you, making all was wild. Someone like you Keep me satisfied Someone exactly like you I've been All around the world Marching to the beat Of a different drum But just lately I have realized Maybe the best is yet to come Someone like you Bring it all worthwhile Someone like you Never satisfied Exactly like you. Good morning, everybody. This one is dedicated to uh, Ron DeSantis. Oh, wait a minute. 
Voy Bon. DeSantis, this is for you. Take a walk on the wild side. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Candy came from out on the island. Room, she was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side 
said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls go do 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Fairy came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Huh. Jackie is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that patch. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 And that last one was dedicated to Governor Ron DeSantis. <clears throat> he needs to take a walk on the wild side or he needs something. And we started out with someone like you, great Van Morrison. Where if you were at the Savoy Ballroom, say, um, in the early 40s, you might have seen a young street hustler. Subject of a lot of our show today. And 
Finally Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Really amazing. It doesn't take a lot to make it amazing. If you go to the wild side, you'll find yourself. Maybe dressed up a little. Maybe talking a little different. Maybe doing things a little differently. People over there are you. Once we realize that, uh, finally we get over this national nightmare that divides us. Bigoted people who don't bigoted people who don't want to admit that the world isn't all white bread and this is the B, by the way. My name is Bill Morgan, and the name of my show is Labor and Love Radio, where every week at uh, 10 o'clock on Saturdays, we bring you labor news, commentary, history, opinion, you name it, by, for, and about working people. And uh, what have we got for you today? Let's take a look. Who was Malcolm X? We're going to start out with that one. Who was Malcolm X? A lot of people don't know or have forgotten or never knew. Uh, one of the real, in my opinion, one of the most trustworthy, okay, trustworthy men, leaders man who was absolutely dedicated to making life better for his people. And by making life better for his people, he would make life better for all of us. He was, of course, assassinated, like several of those similar leaders were. And, uh, of course... The investigation into his murder was botched, was driven from the very beginning by uh, outside forces. Okay, so we're going to find out about that. Who was Malcolm X? And maybe we'll go into the mystery of his assassination. Another leader in the race wars of America, the great Jim Brown. Brown was a football player, one of the greatest. What about the Hollywood writer's strike? What are, what are the issues there? It's a lot more than just wages. We've got radio labor for you, our weekly labor news pickup. Labor history in two. This is something that's personally <clears throat> an issue for me. My mother was Greek. Greece recovers hundreds of looted artifacts. And uh, artifacts and, and people's bones, things were in the news this week uh, because the bones of Native Americans being used in a show 
Anyway, get on to that. About workers' strike. OEA, the Oakland Education Association, won their strike. I'll have some details on that. Um, then I'd like to get on to bituation. Bituation always has something new and different. course, all the way through, you'll be hearing about social Right now, I want to pay homage to one of our sponsors. Go down to Ineos and South San Ness. This is what you'll find. Como México no hay dos. Como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? Ultimate in birria? The best salsa and chips in town, brought to you before you order. How about your favorite vegetarian omelets? Burritos? Tacos? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South San Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you we're in Mexico. And I add to this my own personal wish that you go get down there by San Jalisco. If you already know it, I probably don't have to. And when you're there, tell the people that the bee sent you. Bee from Labor and All right, let's get started. Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 19th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the state of homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia in the world of work, the shortage of teachers in Europe, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. I belong, you belong, we belong to the union. This is Radio Labor. On May 17th, millions of people, including thousands of trade unionists, celebrated the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. The theme of this year's celebration was Together Always, United in Diversity, a theme perfectly in keeping with the labor movement's sense of solidarity and commitment to supporting diversity. 
One of the labor organizations which celebrated May 17th was the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF represents some 20 million unionized workers in 153 countries. Stephen Cotton is the ITF's general secretary. Today, the 17th of May, we're celebrating our diversity. In the ITF, we made a very strong motion in 2018 in our Congress. Brothers, sisters, comrades and friends, we recognise your vital contribution to our transport modes and your rights at the very core of the labour movement. Diversity is at the centre of why we fight and defend solidarity. And so when we're together and we talk about a day where we celebrate our diversity and our differences, it's critical that the labour movement does have a loud voice in this space, does set terms and conditions and does make sure each and every one of us is protected. So today we reflect upon the importance of the work we're doing. ITF, in its tourism conference, passed a very strong resolution in support. Our urban transport, also in Johannesburg this year, passed a very strong support. We're rolling out our message of diversity. We're rolling out a message of inclusion. And it is critical that we're in a position to defend everyone's rights and make significant process in this area. To explain how diversity is being handled in the workplace, the International Labour Organization produced a podcast on the topic. The program featured the Director of Programs for the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association, Nanu Sandhu. The association works under the title ILGA World, ILGA World. Mr. Sandhu was interviewed by ILO Communications Officer Anders Johnson. Nanu, thank you so much for joining us on the ILO World of Work show. Can you tell us a little bit, what's the current situation like for LGBTIQ plus uh, workers around the world? And are things getting better or worse? I think it really depends. First of all, the LGBTIQ plus community is not a homogeneous community. So for some of those, especially lesbian, gay, bisexual workers, things may be improving globally. For trans and intersex persons, again, perhaps some new issues are being introduced and more awareness is being raised, but there still remains challenges. That's a global picture. But then we also need to have a look at what sectors as well. Overall, I would say that the rights of LGBTIQ plus persons in certain sectors, such as finance, hospitality, management positions, doing very progressively well. However, when you look at other part, other sectors, perhaps in construction, administration, hospitality, and other parts of the supply chain of the workforce, where you're most likely to find LGBTIQ plus workers not doing too well. Then we look at by region. Okay, um, Now in parts of North America, we see a backward trend happening in certain sectors, especially in education, especially in he- the health sector as well. Across Europe, this trend is also emerging as well. Now, whereas we go to Southeast Asia or South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, we see that there is progress, particularly around trans rights. More and more programs are being established to equip and skill trans persons and intersex persons. And on the other hand, in that part of the region, lesbian, gay, bisexual persons are um, having more challenges in entering or being more visible in the the workforce. And then in Africa, again, uh, you're seeing another pushback as well in east parts of East and in West Africa. There is not a one-size-fits-all for this. So there are some 80-odd countries right now that have passed laws prohibiting 
discrimination based on the grounds of sexual orientation. But of course, there's a lot more than 80 countries around the world. So what's the main hurdle to actually getting more countries to pass these kind of laws? That's a very, very good question. And that figure actually only looks at sexual orientation. It doesn't take into account gender identity or gender expression and including sex characteristics. One of the key parts of the problem there is engaging civil society, engaging trade unions, employers' organisations, come together, create that dialogue and advocate for those labour codes to be changed to include sexual orientation. So you say that they're there, there's an important role for social dialogue then in this? It is key and fundamental to this. Um, I think it cannot be done without that. I think, and this is a good point where NGOs and civil society and also trade unions can collaborate together to advocate for that change to happen. But that's only on sexual orientation. The, the rest needs to happen on gender identity, gender expression and sex characteristics. So how do you think tackling discrimination in the workplace can help actually improve social justice around the world? For us at ILGA World, we know that labour rights are human rights and that promoting social justice, they go hand in hand. The advancement of, uh, or decriminalisation or advancement of LGBTIQ plus persons' rights actually takes place in the workplace. We've seen case after case after case where discrimination on, based on the, on, on the grounds of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, sex characteristics, where it's been fought, has that actually been fought because of discrimination based in the workplace? ETUCE's 127 member organisations have joined forces and set out 10 key demands to push education policy makers to ensure that education systems are properly funded and staffed to provide quality public education for all. Teaching as a career path has lost much of its attractiveness over the past decades, with a growing number of countries reporting teacher shortages an ageing teaching workforce and a decreasing appeal of the profession among young people. Coupled with an increase in early and mid-career teachers leaving the profession, education policymakers need to act now to ensure a quality public education for all in the coming decades. A Europe-wide campaign, Making Teaching Attractive, is initiated by the European Trade Union Committee for Education representing more than 11 million teachers in 51 countries. At ETUCE, we believe that education is a human right and a public good, and that well-funded, well-staffed education systems are critical to the prosperity of all countries in Europe. Faced with teacher shortages due to both an ageing workforce and the declining status of the profession, Retention and recruitment are critical to the sustainable development of education systems. To raise the status and attractiveness of the teaching profession, ETUCE demands First, professional autonomy and academic freedom for teachers and academics. Second, decent salaries for teachers, trainers, academics and other education personnel. Third, Quality teacher training and continuous professional development. Fourth, quality entry career paths and retention practices. Fifth, equality and diversity in the teaching workforce. Sixth, a healthy and safe working environment in education. Seventh, a better work-life balance and to control excessive workload. Eighth, a democratic school culture 
and collegial leadership in education. Ninth, strong and meaningful social dialogue. And finally, to empower the teaching profession at all levels of education in Europe, from early childhood education, primary and secondary education, vocational education and training, through to higher education and research. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to an analysis of how the mass mobilization of workers in France to oppose pension rollbacks is revitalizing the French labor movement. Other top stories included articles marking the 10th anniversary of the Bangladesh Accord on factory safety and celebrating its expansion. We also carried items about the recent surge in Chinese factory protests and new Canadian legislation that may help expose the use of child labor for goods sold in that country. A random sample from our news pages includes the news that yet another union activist has been sent to prison in Belarus. The reaction of media unions to the appointment of a far-right business person to head the country's public broadcaster why South Korean unions need our global solidarity, and they need it now, and the ongoing Dockers dispute in Belize. This week, our Working Women news page carried items about a sex worker's organizing victory in the United States, an analysis of the connection between gender inequality and climate change, and the ongoing struggle in Switzerland against the gender pay gap. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included details of the resurgence of black lung disease in the United States, a health and safety walkout by Italian workers at a car assembly plant, and the tradition of grossly overworking ferry workers in Hong Kong that resulted in the death of a worker last week. Our current photo of the week is a shot of Panamanian miners protesting union busting by a Canadian company. Canadian mining companies have a huge footprint in Central America and a terrible reputation for, amongst other things, vicious anti-union practices. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight two urgent appeals for online solidarity with trained union activists in Belarus and in Georgia. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Australia's Tim O'Brien with We Belong to the Union. Scatter my rights all over the place And take the bread from off my plate But you can't break me Lock me out, chain the gates Put black shirts in with dogs and mace I'll hold the line, won't step away Cause you can't break me I belong, you belong We belong to the union Don't count me out when I'm on the floor We'll win again, we've won before will ring with a mighty roar Cause you can't break me Stocks rise up on workers' backs Profits soar while you hand out the sack Boardroom bullies bloated and fat But you can't break me Australia's sold to mates offshore Backroom deals and shonky 
this day has come, we say no more. You can't break me. I belong, you belong, we belong to the union. I belong, you belong, we belong to the union. We won't turn away if you dare us to fight. I swear I'll never lay down and die. Strong women and men united as one. But you can't break me. There's a warning here to the men in grey. The pipers come, it's time to pay. We're taking back what you stole away. Cause you can't break me. I belong, you belong, we belong to the union. I belong, you belong, we belong. And that's it, Labor News You Can Use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
crops are all in and the peach trees are rotting and the oranges are piled in the crystal dumps where well, you're flying them back to the mexican border to pay off their money to wait back again goodbye to you one and goodbye rosalita goodbye me amigo jesus and maria have a name when you fly the big airplane and all they will call you is just deportee my father's own father he waded that river well they took all the money that he made My sisters and brothers came work in the fruit tree And they rode in the truck till they took down and died And goodbye to you, Juan Goodbye, Rosalita and Goodbye, me amigo, Jesus and Maria you won't have a name when you fly the big airplane for all they will call you just deportee now some of us are illegal and some are not wanted our work contracts out and we've got to move on 600 miles to the mexican border they chase us like outlaws like rustlers like thieves goodbye to you one and goodbye rosalita When you ride the big airplane And all they will call you Is just deportee Well, we died in your hills And we died in your desert And we died in your valleys And we died on your plains died neath your trees and we died neath the bushes both sides of the river we died just the same goodbye to you one goodbye rosalita goodbye me amigo jesus and maria big airplane oh, all they will call you will be 
deportee. Well, the sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon. A fireball of lightning shook all our hills. Who are all those people all scattered like dry leaves? Well, the radio says he just Deportees Is this the best way We can grow our big orchards Is this the best way We can grow our good fruit To fall like dry leaves And rot on your topsoil And be called by no name except Goodbye to you, I'm goodbye, Rosalita. Goodbye, me amigo Jesus and Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. Where all them come, you will be. Okay, let's play one more. Um, <clears throat> last couple of weeks, we marked the anniversary, we call it that, of the bombing of a church in Guild. Uh, killed four young girls as a result of racism, racism let loose in the land. Um, still here with us. So, guess what? has a composition called Alabama taking note of the time dark Go. 
Sing it so 
was Joan Baez, of course, with a song that no matter how many times I hear it, touches you down deep. Makes you stop and look around and wonder what's going on. Feeling rolling
So there it is on a Saturday morning, John Coltrane's version of Alabama, coupled with Joan Baez's song about Birmingham Sundays. A little hard to get <coughs> good feeling back. Children are Yeah, your kid has enough to eat. For a short while, their kids had enough to eat. It was bad for the economy. The Republicans don't like it. They're not alone. Republicans shouldn't have gotten where they got today. Okay, well, this is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And you might ask what Birmingham Sunday has to do with Labor and Love. Very basic way that people earn their living. Very basic days they go through. What is your day like? What is your work day like? That's one-third of your life. 
What is it like? Could it be better? Could it be really better? Well, then, maybe it's time to organize. As we say, if you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu. Okay, let's take a little break here and come back on the other side. Who was Malcolm X? Good question. One uh, leftist critic, I guess a critic, said that everyone in America should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. It should be required reading for everybody, even for Ron DeSantis. <coughs> because the autobiography of Malcolm X puts Malcolm squarely in the center of the black experience. It is something that everyone should know about, every American citizen. So, street hustler, prophet, teacher, agitator, you name it. Let's hear about who was. you belong to. So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. How did one man go from petty criminal to becoming a global voice against racism? He's one of the most prominent Muslims in modern history and a symbol of black liberation who has inspired generations. A gangster, a preacher, and a revolutionary this is the extraordinary journey of Malcolm X. Malcolm X was born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents, Earl and Louise Little, were followers of the Pan-African activist Marcus Garvey. As a result, their family was subjected to constant harassment by the Ku Klux Klan, who burned down their home when Malcolm was just four years old. The family moved to Michigan, where they were threatened by the Black Legion, an offshoot of the KKK. Four of Malcolm's uncles were also murdered by white racists. 
Malcolm's father died when he was six. The incident was officially ruled a streetcar accident, although his mother believed he had ultimately been murdered by the Black Legion. When Malcolm was 13, his mother was committed to a mental institution. Her children were split up and sent to different foster homes. Malcolm was an excellent student, but dropped out of school after a white teacher told him it was unrealistic for a young black boy to have aspirations of being a lawyer. After a few years in Michigan and Boston, he moved to Harlem at the age of 18, where he was involved in gambling, robbery, drug dealing, and pimping. At the age of 21, after committing a string of robberies with a small gang in Boston, Malcolm was arrested and sentenced to eight to 10 years at Charlestown State Prison. Incarceration was the beginning of Malcolm's transformation. While in prison, his siblings began writing to him about the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. The Nation of Islam promoted black independence and rejected the notion of the superiority of white people. Instead, Elijah Muhammad taught his followers a form of separatism from whites, who were actually considered devils, inferior to black people who were the original inhabitants of Earth. Malcolm, initially hostile to the idea of any religion, eventually became a member of the nation. He read books constantly and began writing regularly to Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad's followers were taught to abandon their given family names as they were actually the names of former slave owners. So Malcolm Little became Malcolm X. After being paroled, Malcolm visited Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. In June the next year, he was named Assistant Minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple No. 1 in Detroit. He later established Boston's Temple No. 11 and expanded Temple No. 12 in Philadelphia. And those of you who think that you perhaps came here to hear us tell you to turn the other cheek to the brutality of the white man, I say again, you came to the wrong place. Finally, he was selected to lead Temple No. 7 in Harlem, where he was responsible for a huge surge in membership. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the South, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the North. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in, in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. The FBI now had him under surveillance due to his sudden profile as the nation's rising star. Malcolm's rise to national prominence happened in 1957, when he intervened at a police station to arrange for medical assistance and legal help for members of the nation who had been beaten and arrested by New York police. The crowd of protesters outside grew to almost 4,000. Witnessing Malcolm's control of the crowd shook the New York Police Department. Within weeks, they had him under surveillance and officially began infiltrating the nation. In 1958, Malcolm married his wife Betty, with whom he would have six daughters. Malcolm's profile continued to grow via print and television appearances, and he began to gain international exposure. Who is it that controls the prostitution in Harlem? It's the white man. Who controls the large sale of whiskey and wine? It's the white man. Who gives you the deck of cards and the dice that you use to gamble with? It's the white man. And after he sell them to you, he kept you with him and put you in jail for using them. He was deeply critical of the growing civil rights movement and its leaders, like Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached integration. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they've taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep 
the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy. Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today. To Malcolm's message was being heard louder than ever, but his relationship with the man who had transformed his life was about to fracture. Tensions were growing within the nation over the amount of attention Malcolm was receiving compared to his mentor, Elijah Muhammad. An unprovoked raid on a Nation of Islam mosque by police in Los Angeles led to one member being paralyzed and another being killed. No charges were laid against the police. The white man believes you when you go to him with that old sweet talk because you've been sweet talking him ever since he brought you here. Stop sweet talking. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Malcolm was reportedly stunned by Elijah Muhammad's refusal to allow any form of response or retaliation for the incident. The two also disagreed over Malcolm's desire to begin working with civil rights organizations, black politicians, and other religious organizations. Then, suddenly, here is a bulletin from CBS News. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded. Malcolm's response to the Kennedy assassination led to him being officially silenced for 90 days. Malcolm X, you were involved in a controversy some months ago with your leader. Is that over? Well, I've been, I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States. Uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes, and what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. In March of 1964, Malcolm publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so. Then came a bombshell. Well, in reality, I never even left the Muslim movement. They put me out. And they put me out because of what I knew. And what I knew was told to me by Mr. Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace Muhammad himself. They put me out and they put him out. Who is the father of all of these various children whom you have enumerated? Uh, the first one to tell me who the father was was Wallace Muhammad. And he told me that the father was Elijah Muhammad himself. And how many of these illegitimate children did he father with the sisters? Well, he made uh, six sisters pregnant. They all had children. Two of those six had two children. I am told that there is a seventh sister who is supposed to be in Mexico right now, and she's supposed to be having a child by him. Are you not, perhaps, afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. After splitting from the nation, Malcolm began learning the tenets and practices of Sunni Islam. He founded the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, a religious organization, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity, a non-religious group promoting Pan-Africanism. He had softened his position on Martin Luther King, who he met only once in person. And later the same year, he performed Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. This was to be yet another transformative experience for him. When I was in on the pilgrimage, I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white and with Muslims who themselves would be classified as white in America. But these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white. They looked upon themselves as human beings, as part of the human family, and therefore they looked upon all other segments of the human family as part of that same family. 
Now, uh, they had a different look or a different air or a different attitude than that which is uh, reflected in the uh, attitude of the man in America who calls himself white. So I said that if uh, Islam had done this, done that for them, perhaps if the white man in America would study Islam, perhaps it could do the same thing for him. After Mecca, Malcolm made two trips to Africa, meeting officials and speaking on radio and television across the continent. In Cairo, he attended the second meeting of the Organization of African Unity and met Africa's most high-profile leaders, including Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria, who all offered him official positions in their respective governments. He met with Fidel Castro and was one of the first African-American leaders to meet the newly created Palestinian Liberation Organization and was one of the pioneers of a tradition of black Palestinian solidarity that would be continued by the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter movement. A common misconception about Malcolm's philosophical evolution is that his process of turning to Sunni Islam softened his political positions. While it's true that Malcolm abandoned some of the nation's more extreme separatist positions on race, he remained a staunch black nationalist. I think what a lot of people are interested in, Malcolm, is whether this experience has made you feel that that your feelings have changed, that, uh, that the animosity you have expressed in the past toward all fights. The one the thing that I want to make cl clear, no matter how much respect, no matter how much uh, uh, recognition whites show toward me, as far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. If anything, Malcolm's travel had led him to globalize his perspective, seeing black liberation as something beyond the United States, and as something that was intimately tied to struggles for independence across the Third World. It has remained a domestic problem. It has remained within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it has, and as such, it has been impossible for the Afro-Americans or American Negroes to try and enlist the support of other dark-skinned uh, people who are being oppressed the world over in, in that struggle. And the only way this can be done is by internationalizing the problem. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, browns, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. The Nation of Islam had not taken Malcolm's exit and public criticism of Elijah Muhammad's misconduct lightly. His family was repeatedly threatened, their car was bombed, and FBI surveillance records show that law enforcement was aware that elements within the nation were openly discussing his death. Then his house was burned down. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm was addressing the Organization of Afro-American Unity in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom. He was shot 21 times. Three Nation of Islam members were tried and convicted of the murder, but questions remained. At the time of his death, Malcolm was under surveillance by both the NYPD and the FBI's COINTELPRO operation. For many, there is simply no doubt that one or both organizations had a hand in his assassination. Malcolm's legacy went on to be preserved in hip-hop, film, and literature. Most importantly, his own autobiography, which continues to be celebrated and was named one of the 10 most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. His politics continue to inspire generations of activism against racism and imperialism worldwide. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change and a better world has to be 
built, and the only way it's going to be built is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. Malcolm's funeral was held in Harlem. Some estimate that up to 30,000 people attended. Actor and activist Ozzie Davis delivered the eulogy. Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. Many will ask what Harlem finds to honor in this stormy, controversial, and bold young captain, and we will smile. Many will say, turn away, away from this man, for he is not a man, but a demon, a monster, a subverter, and an enemy of the black man. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him? or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. What we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which after the winter of discontent will come forth again to meet us. And we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince, who did not hesitate to die because he loved us so. Do you now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. Malcolm X, um, <clears throat> with a touching eulogy by Ozzie Davis. I think it's important to emphasize, to re-emphasize, as they did in this video, TRT is the name of the company that made it. Um, <clears throat> That Malcolm X was always first and foremost a black nationalist. Um, he was helped by socialists. He was giving, he was able to use their facilities to give his speeches. A lot of his work was republished afterward by socialists, most of whom were white. And he did make some statements. When you see a capitalist, you see a bloodsucker, he said once. <clears throat> a lot of people thought he was on the road to becoming a socialist. Whether he did or not, or was or not, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think anyone ever, anything ever, ever, was more important to him than black nationalism. 
liberation of black people. I think he saw a way that that liberation struggle could and should be extended to everyone in the world who suffers from colonialism and neocolonialism. But did he ever stop being a black nationalist? No. Another black leader who died Jim Brown, football player who also worked to liberate people, was an important voice in black freedom struggle. is known as one of the greatest football players of all time. He was also an actor and civil rights activist. James Brown has more on his legacy. He was one of the greatest football players to step foot on the gridiron, but his talents transcended sports. Jim Brown was born in 1936 in segregated Georgia. He rose to fame as a football and lacrosse standout at Syracuse. ESPN recently called him the greatest college football player ever. Number 32, Jimmy Brown. Brown went on to play nine seasons in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns. He led the league in rushing for eight of those and was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1971. From professional footballers. At the top of his career, Brown quit the NFL at the age of 30 to pursue acting. He starred in dozens of films, including movies like The Dirty Dozen and Any Given Sunday, where he shared the screen with Al Pacino. Tonight, Brown also being remembered for his political activism during the civil rights movement and the decades that followed. In the 1980s, Brown founded the Amer I Can Foundation, which teaches life skills to at-risk youth. He faced his own share of legal issues, serving time in prison in 2002 for charges related to a domestic violence dispute. That's the greatness in the building. Still, his legacy means he was revered by this generation of superstar athletes. Jim Brown was 87 years old. He was indeed one of the greatest ever athletes in any sport. Chanel? James Brown, thank you. Tyler Dragon joins me now with more on this. He is an NFL reporter at USA Today. Thanks so much for making time. Thanks for having me on. I want to start with asking you about Brown's legacy in the NFL. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, Jim Brown is not only just one of the best football players of all time, he's one of the best athletes in the history of sports. By the time he retired, he was the NFL's rushing champion. Uh, multiple-time MVP, um, an NFL champion with the uh, Cleveland Browns, the Browns' only uh, championship. And, you know, he's just one of the best running backs of all time, if not the best. A lot of players, past and present, look up to him, watch his highlight films, watch the way he played the game. He was one of the uh, most fiercest uh, runners of the football in pro football history, his ability, not only his speed, but his power. People were afraid to tackle <laughs> Jim Brown in his heyday. And then just his legacy off the field, as you uh, alluded to in the segment, you know, he was a social justice pioneer. He's a civil rights activist. So he's going to have an 
everlasting legacy, not only on the football field, but off the football field and just his overall impact. Is there a more decorated player than Jim Brown in league history? That's a good question. You can make the case that he's the most decorated player of all time in mm. the NFL on and off the field. You can go with, you know, the Jerry Rice's of the world, the Tom Brady's, the Joe Montana's, but Jim Brown is definitely up there, a pro football hall of famer. There's pro football hall of famers and then there's hall of famers that stand out above the rest. And mm. Jim Brown is definitely a hall of famer that stands out above the rest. And I wonder if you can speak quickly, Tyler, about reaction that we're seeing online. What are people saying? Yeah, a lot of people are just sharing their condolences to Jim Brown's family, his friends and loved ones. A lot of uh, NFL organizations are uh, posting uh, messages, heartfelt messages on social media and on their team website. So it's going to be felt around the NFL. I would not be surprised if the Cleveland Browns did something to memorialize Jim Brown uh, this coming season, maybe a decal on the, their helmet or mm -hmm. something of that source. But he's definitely going to be missed. Truly an icon and an NFL legend. Tyler Dragon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Have a great night. You as well. Okay, Jim Brown uh, recently <clears throat> was one of the characters. Jim Brown was a character in a play um, film called One Night in Miami where he meets with um, Muhammad Ali, who's just defeated uh, Sonny Liston for the championship, heavyweight championship. Sam Cooke, songwriter. Um, Jim Brown and Malcolm X meet together and talk and share their ideas. It's a a situation that never really happened. But it's interesting. And at the very beginning of the film, Jim Brown goes back to Georgia to uh, meet his old coach. And they sit together and the coach, high school coach, maybe college coach, they sit together and they talk and very friendly, supportive way. And the coach gets up and he says, uh, oh, can I get you something to drink? And Brown said, no, just water. And the coach goes into the house and Jim Brown follows him into the house. And the coach says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't come in here. We don't let Negroes in our, in our house. Just to let Brown know where and who he was, where and who Coach was. Okay, let's get on now. We've got some contemporary things going on. Hollywood faces larger work stoppage as actors threaten to strike alongside writers. See if we can get this one. The Actors Union SAG AFTRA has called for a strike authorization vote. 
television, movie, and streaming show writers began striking May 2nd. Getting in. Got Tom Hanks talking, but no sound. Or tidy upper. What's for supper? Money stretcher, run and fetcher. Cake baker, back acre, early waker, bed maker, breakfast maker, lunch maker, tea maker, sandwich maker. Lady, what do you do all day? Lady, it's your only life. When they ask you, what do you say? Oh, I don't work. I'm nothing but a housewife. Um, this is a song I've recently learned. I love it. It's a ballad uh, about a girl who's wagered to uh, go up the hill and come down a virgin. Her lover's waiting up at the top. It's not a very common ballad in this country. Already on the picket line, putting even more pressure on studios and networks. The ongoing writer's strike has halted production on movies and scripted series like Stranger Things on Netflix, Apple TV's Severance, and Showtime's Yellow Jackets. Late night TV shows have already gone dark. 
For more on the strike and what's at stake, I'm joined by two television writers and Writers Guild members, Sal Gentile and Jeannie Fan Wong. Thank you both for being with us. And Jeannie, we'll start with you. This is day 17 of the strike. How are you and other writers faring? And remind us of what it is that you're demanding. We're basically asking for less than 2% of profits that they make from writer content. Um, when it comes down to it and sustainable wages to be able to have a career in um, entertainment is what we're asking for. And I was just out on the picket line this morning and felt really good with morale and all of us are, I drove in, had a two hour commute because I'm house sitting out of town. It just felt really good morale just to see everyone and especially when people drop off food. It's always nice when people feed the writers. So Jeannie, streaming has dramatically transformed the industry. This is a prolific era in American entertainment. One would think that compensation would reflect that. Why hasn't it? There's a huge influence of uh, the tech industry on streaming and the way that uh, writers are being compensated. So I'm both a television and a new feature writer. And in television, our employment were paid weekly and the average number of weeks that a writer is working in a room has gone down a lot. And oftentimes writers are forced to stretch um, the money that they make in such a short amount of time over a longer time and even in some writers um, some contracts with options and exclusivity sometimes writers are held and they can't even find other work and in feature writing there's just um, a lot that we're asking for uh, more than a one-step deal because there's a lot of free work <laughs> and I know that sounds insane but there's a lot of uh, just free labor that's being asked that's sort of like a courtesy and whatnot and so basically a lot of the, the tech industry has just like devalued, asked for more work, sometimes free work for less money and asking writers to stretch our salaries over a long time. Hmm. And Sal, you work in late night. That's a high pressure job, long hours. You have to be funny every day. You can't necessarily wait for the muse to strike. How have the changes in the industry that Jeannie's talking about, how has that affected the work that you and your colleagues do? Well, so I'm incredibly lucky because my show is on a broadcast network. And so we benefit from protections that the Guild has fought for and collectively bargained for over many years. We benefit from protections such as minimum pay and residuals for the reuse of our material. And that makes it possible for writers to have a livable career and to go from project to project. And the fear is that because we all know streaming is here and not only is it here, but it will continue to be the future, that will go away for all writers across the guild, but especially and particularly for late night and comedy variety writers, because uh, studios have essentially proposed uh, taking all of those protections for late night writers and comedy variety writers away. And as you mentioned, it's a high pressure job. You have to respond to the news every single day and write jokes about the news every single day. And it's really hard to do that without the security, at least some minimum level of uh, guarantee about what your contract is going to say and the studios would like in the future if these shows are exclusively on streaming to pay writers not a minimum uh, not the residuals but to pay a day rate uh, which would not make it a sustainable career for anybody and so because I love the type of writing I do I love late night writing I love 
writing jokes about the news. Uh, I want to I want to make sure it remains a sustainable career both for myself and my colleagues and for people who come after us because there's going to be plenty more you know, insane news for the, the shows to make fun of. Sal, a sticking point in the, the writer's strike has to do with artificial intelligence. AI is already being used in, in entertainment writing. What are some of the concerns uh, that you and your colleagues have? Yeah, so I want to establish one thing, which is that writers are not naive about technology. We know that AI is here, and we know that it's the future, and we want to make sure that we can use it as a tool creatively in the creative process rather than being replaced by it. And so I think, for example, the nightmare scenario, the fear is that studios will use AI to generate really bad scripts, or let's say in my case, really bad uh, jokes about the news. And then they'll bring in a writer at a much lower rate with many fewer writers in a room to improve a bad script generated by AI and make it good enough to use on television or in film. And so uh, we want to just, we just want basic protections in place to make sure that they can't do that. We're not saying AI is going to go away. We're simply saying, let's put basic protections in place that will make sure it doesn't replace us, but that we can use the technology as part of the creative process. And we should say we reached out to the group that's representing the studios to participate in this discussion, and they said they don't speak on the record about ongoing negotiations. But Jeannie, I will tell you, I spoke with a studio executive who made the point that the studios right now can literally afford to wait out this strike because they are in a cost-cutting mode right now and this work stoppage for them is a savings. These are temporary savings. How long are you prepared to stay out in the picket line? I prepare to stay out as long as it takes because the fight for to have a sustainable career, it's a, an existential fight um, for writers to be able to make a living and it's also a fight for a lot of working class and middle class writers. Um, we have a robust strike fund. Um, I have applied to it just in case, and I'll stay out here as long as I need to. And as you know, people are sending food, and it's been great to march and pick it with other unions. So how do you see it? And what would it mean if SAG-AFTRA, if the performers union, if the directors union uh, joined this effort? Uh, the cross-union solidarity has been incredible on the picket lines. We've been joined by our friends and colleagues from unions across the industry. And as you noted, SAG has already called for a strike authorization vote because everybody recognizes that this is an existential moment for the industry at large. The streaming era has broken the profit sharing model that already existed, that was in place. It was imperfect, but it was there. Make sure that the people who work in this industry can sustain a, a livable career and it's not an industry just for the lucky few. And, but for everybody across all of these unions and guilds. And so everybody recognizes that. And I, I, I've, you know, I've, I've felt the same incredible energy on the picket lines. I know everybody, as much as we love writing and as much as we want to get back to our jobs as writers, everybody is committed to this cause and seeing it through across all of the sister unions that have joined us on the picket line. Sal Gentile and Jeannie Fan Wong, thank you both for sharing your perspectives with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so there's the writer's strike. Listen to a couple of labor historians, too, and then it's time for us to go. But before we do that, I want to pay homage to one of our sponsors, the people at San Jalisco on 20th and South Van Ness. Como Mexico, no hay dos. 
como San Jalisco tampoco. Over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? The ultimate in birria? Best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order. Oh, how about your favorite vegetarian omelets? Burritos and tacos. They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South San Nis in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. So please go and visit the people who sponsor this show and get a great meal besides helping me. Okay, so this is the bee. And it's time for us to get on, but let's listen to CLRJ. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day that black author and Marxist theorist C.L.R. James passed away. James was born in Trinidad, at the time a Caribbean colony that was part of the British Empire. His father was a school teacher. James became a leading intellectual on the subject of black liberation. His most famous work, The Black Jacobins, tells the story of the 1791 Haitian Revolution, when enslaved black Haitians successfully overthrew French colonial rule. James was a frequent contributor to Labor Action, a Marxist journal produced in New York from 1940 to 1950. He wrote about the struggles of black workers. He often penned fiery language. For example, in 1941, James wrote an article imploring black workers not to cross the picket line during a strike against the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. Ford had a reputation of hiring black workers at a time when many employers discriminated in their employment practices. But James warned his readers that the Ford company was no friend to the worker and that the company was attempting to use race to keep its workforce divided. James wrote, quote, Ford is one of the most dangerous enemies of labor who exist in this country. This enemy of society has been laying a train of race hatred in Detroit and is now about to touch it off. The organized working class movement and the Negroes will have to fight hard and long to check and frustrate and defeat this sinister plot. This will be no easy fight. In other articles, James also used his pen to call out labor unions for not including black workers and to call for the unification of black and white workers in their struggle. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. That was the day we lost one of the giants of the U.S. labor movement, A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph spent his life working for black workers and the cause of labor. He organized the first national black union to be recognized by the American Federation of Labor, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The fight for union recognition took 12 years. 
and the Porters signed their first contract in 1937. Randolph went on to lead the effort to desegregate war industries and armed services during and after World War II. He was one of the leading organizers of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, one of the most memorable actions of the Civil Rights Movement. He also worked tirelessly to break down discrimination within the labor movement. He was elected the first black vice president of the AFL-CIO in 1955. Randolph's dedication to the cause of labor was summed up when he said, quote, the essence of trade unionism is social uplift. The labor movement has been the haven for the dispossessed, the despised, the neglected, the downtrodden, the poor. But Randolph also consistently declared that no movement for social justice can be complete unless it is also inclusive. While organizing for the desegregation of the war industries during World War II, Phillips argued, quote, equality is the heart and essence of democracy, freedom and justice, equality of opportunity in industry, in labor unions, schools and colleges, government, politics, and before the law. There must be no dual standard of justice, no dual rights, privileges, duties, or responsibilities of citizenship. No dual forms of freedom. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society. Hey, Philip Randolph and CLR Jean. Giants. Liberation. This is the B. Signing off. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu, and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Have a good week and good work. Please stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. Flat Black Plastic. Scott Walker. Welcome to L W A F L M O Y T. 
Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hey, Mike. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for having me on. People listening to audio won't get this thing. Having me on, you are well, yes, right, right. I know. I'm glad to be here as your co-host again. Thank you oh, very nice. much, Mike Spiegelman. I am at this Mike Spiegelman and Carl. And let me just hog up some time. Don't forget to donate to Mutiny Radio. Absolutely, we are rec- actually streaming right now on Mutiny Radio, and we stream first every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're out from San Francisco. And you can find us uh, at our podcast at L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T and our YouTube channel with video right now, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. But donate to Mutiny Radio. Go to Venmo and give them some money at Mutiny Radio. The website is mutinyradio.fm. There's another donation button. And you can listen to all the great shows and read about the live comedy here at Mutiny Radio. We're on Mini Radio, Carl. We watch a full-length movie every week on YouTube. Uh, great premise. Great premise, right? Do we rip along as the movie goes? Yes. Yeah, so I built these robots because I am uh, lost in space and I'm forced to watch bad movies. <laughs> yeah, and you know that show, Mystery Science Theater 3? Th- yeah, it's nothing like that. Yeah. Nothing like it's that. No, nothing no, 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 no. like that. Carl, what movie are we watching today? Today we are watching... As time goes by, 1988. As time goes As by, time 1988. As time goes by. How can you right. say that title without hearing the, the song from Casablanca? Well, that's true. Absolutely. And look, everyone at home who's going to watch this movie w- with us, you must remember this. It's go As time goes by, 1988. The channel we like is, it's all one word, so it... It's not friendly to your eye, but it's Hey Do Radio. Hey Do Radio. H-E-Y. How do you spell Doe? D-O-E. All right. Hey Do Radio is hosting As Time Goes By from 1988. Yes. A, a current movie for us. A 1988. Yeah. Type in As Time Goes By 1988. You'll find the link courtesy of Hey Do, D-O-E Radio. Click it. Hit pause. Move it back to 000. When you hear go, we're all going to hit play, and we're going to watch this movie on YouTube together. So you could listen to us streaming live and watching the YouTube channel right now live. You can listen to the podcast and DYI it at your own convenience, or just go to the YouTube channel, and Carl already synced it for you. Right. Carl, I'm really excited that there's a celebrity comedian to do our countdown for our movie. Take it away, Carl. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Celebrity Comedian Countdown, this time with Scott! Welcome, Scott! How you doing? All right. Now, Scott, you are a comedian out there on the scene. I'm seeing you come up. We're coming up together, seeing you at open mics. I'm seeing you at shows. The first thing I want to ask is you've only got one name. This is very peculiar, just to go by Scott. How did that start? How did you make that change? You know what? I am not really sure, but there was a great comedian that I used to watch when I did the stand-up comedy. His name he went by Carl. So <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if that stuck or I just uh, came up with it on my own. I really mm-hmm. don't know. 
It, well, it's a very interesting concept. It's almost unheard of. This is the first time I ever bumped into it, so kudos to you. It's a very common name, Scott, and you'll distinguish yourself by not having a last name. It's a good idea. Start from the best. Now, the second thing I wanted to bring up is your material, okay? You are very wife-centric, very wife-centric, and it's not in a positive light. So... How do you really arrive at this from a life frustration? Is she in the room? And how does this play out in your personal life with her? Well, she's not too far. I believe she might be in the shower. So I'm safe for at least a couple of minutes. Um, well, you know what? Obviously, everything I say is not 100% true. But she definitely gives me this the, the springboard to... Uh, make those jokes and continuously i might add day to day <laughs> always so, new material uh, always giving me new material <laughs> for sure tell me more though does she is she aware of this is it on her radar how does she feel about it has she seen you do wife jokes yes and she um she came actually the one time i actually took the uh comedy class at uh, scotty's and um she did come to the graduation and that was about the last time um yeah she she doesn't particularly care for me doing wife jokes and i explained to her that it's not 100 percent about her and when i do tell her jokes she goes that's not how it happened i said exactly i said because <laughs> i i take the story and then i switch it around a little bit right um but still not really happy because she's like well people don't know what the real story is and i said well most people don't even really know me or you but that answer is good enough <laughs> well you know i had the same thing with my wife now i'm not like you in terms of it being like a uh, part of your persona practically you know but i do have many wife jokes and they're not favorable so i made up a fake name her name is cynthia when i'm on stage so it's a fake name have you thought of something like that namer gladys i did no, but you know what? Here's the truth of the matter. I would really like to get away from wife jokes. It just it just seems so easy because it's so there. But I do feel uh -huh. this, especially for like starting comedians. When you have something that's so easy, because comedy is all about timing and being able to get up there and speak comfortably. And that is like the easiest thing for me to do. So maybe mm -hmm. in time, I will move away, which I am actually trying to do as we speak so but okay they just keep popping into my head as <laughs> the days go on so we'll see what happens well you got to write from what you know and you're certainly doing that that is for sure now exactly. let you you are a very fresh comedian new comedian i mean you're taking the class maybe we're talking about two years here something like that what do you i, I took the class and it was it was two years three months